This is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia, and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim, and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Ilyri. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello. I am drinking a straight-up gin and tonic with a lot of strawberries. It's a lot of strawberries. I thought it was a, a like a rosé wine or something at first glass, because it's so pink. <laughs> yeah. It's good though. I can't resist it. When I've got fresh strawberries, they all go in the gin. Mm-hmm. And what are we thinking about today? Mm. You didn't I'm even thinking. get to that. You're, you're guzzling straight away. You, haven't even, like, you had so one nice. job in this in this intro. One job. <laughs> With two uh, parts. I my job was to drink. <laughs> now I am thinking about absinthe. Ah. La Fay Vert, the Green Fairy, Labsans. Um, I went down several rabbit holes with this research. It's a very interesting drink. So mm-hmm. I think we should begin with a bit of um bit of etymology and so forth. Go for it. So I think probably the first thing everyone knows about absinthe is its key flavouring is wormwood. People seem mm-hmm. to know that. What people don't seem to know is that wormwood is a herb. It's not a wood. It's not a tree. <laughs> it's a herb that's prized it for its um, kind of herby flavour and health benefits. And it's native to Europe as a herb, but it can grow anywhere, really. It's been introduced into other places, but it's not native in other climates. And there's a lot of records of it being used historically for medicinal purposes. So you can see it in ancient Egypt on old papyrus scrolls from around 1500 BCE. You see it in ancient Greece used medicinally and also to flavor wine, absinthium oinus. And in the Middle Ages, wormwood, which was used to, uh, in the Middle Ages, it was used to spice mead. Um, as we've seen before, many different ways to make mead. And in Morocco, it's used in tea called Sheba. And in the 18th century England, it was used sometimes instead of hops in beer. So it's been used all over the place for a long time. Yeah. And now it's also used in bitters and also vermouth. So vermouth is... German, German mm-hmm. Vermut, Wormwood. It's the same root, Vermut, ah. of Wormwood or Vermut. But like pr- prior to that, what it actually means in Old German, um, Vermut or Vermut, it's not known. OED just marks it as of obscure origin. So we mm. don't really know. But Wormwood is also... Um, Artemisia absinthium, and its Latin name, Latin and Greek origins. Artemis, kind of obvious, it's the goddess of the hunt and the forest, Um, Artemisia. Mm -hmm. Absinthium, on the other hand, is another unknown. 
Um, some people say it comes from um, a Greek rendering of undrinkable, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just some etymological shade. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, the the oomph sound of it suggests that there's something um, non-Indo-European, like pre-Greek about it. So it's possibly from Persian. Persia oh, it's has... possibly the sound that you make when you're trying not to bring it back up. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I will put that to OED and see what they say. Uh, <laughs> but it possibly comes from a Persian word, Ispans, which means wild rue. So, I mean, it's not a rue, but it's sort of of a similar vein in terms of its herbaceousness. Um, Wormwood, crucially, is not hallucinogenic if you're consuming it in the amounts you will find it in absinthe. But it does have a compound in it called thujone, which can be toxic and can be fatal in large amounts. So it is it is true to an extent that it does have a sort of, you know, a, a toxic chemical in it that could make you be a bit funny, but it's just, it was never used historically, you know, traditionally in an amount where it would make a difference in absinthe. And we need to bear that in mind as we look at the journey of absinthe from its creation to now, because its reputation is different to the reality. So we need to define these amounts. Do they take into consideration binge drinking? <laughs> well, yes, because the point is you would die of alcohol poisoning before you died of food drug poisoning. Right. Okay, myth busted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At least in the traditional way of making absinthe. Um, and I might give it a case for why people would feel toxic effects later on. Uh, so the first evidence we have for this traditional absinthe, as I keep mentioning, is the late 18th century. It's in Switzerland. Now, some people, some sources say it's Mother Henriot who created it, sort of woman in her kitchen making it as a, as a medicinal tincture. But we have more evidence that the first patent comes from a French doctor called Pierre Ordinaire, still in Switzerland, in Cuvée. Um, and he was marketing it as an all-purpose remedy. So the first time we get absinthe, it is, you know, like a lot of drinks, actually, that are very heavy on the herbal content, they start off as medicinal tinctures rather than aperitifs. But it does become an aperitif before too long. And the first distillery is still in Cuvée, where it's being created. And Major Dubide um, sets up with his future son-in-law, not son-in-law at the time, Dubide father and son in 1798. And then in 1805, his son-in-law, Henri-Louis Pernod, sets up a bigger distillery, the Pernod Feet, over the border in France. So it's a bigger distillery, it's the first French one, and you will recognize the name Pernod, because, you know, yeah, has, it has other drinks under the Pernod name. And in fact, that brings me on to what I'm drinking today, which I haven't mentioned yet. This little mm-hmm. number, which just looks very clear, is actually Bekarovka and soda water. You have it with tonic Ooh. as well. Bekarovka, you will often find in cocktails with absinthe, and it is made by Perno, it's not called Perno Fee anymore, it's Perno something else, which I've forgotten. Um, 
and it's very herbal spirit. So lots, lots of kind of secret herbs and spices in it. It tastes a little bit cinnamony and a little bit gingery, which I say just to explain what it is as opposed to tasting notes. So that's what mm. I'm drinking as a, as a related, because I didn't have any absinthe in. Yeah, I didn't fancy drinking absinthe <laughs> on, a, <laughs> on a Thursday evening. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there we go. So that's the bigger distillery in France. It starts being popular locally around that area between France and Spain, but it does spread around the 1830s. And that's largely because France was waging war in Algeria and they packed off a lot of absinthe to go with the troops. And that was obviously, you know, largely because of morale. Troops are always given alcohol to kind of boost their morale, but also to sterilize medical equipment, for example, because it has such high alcohol content. And then also to protect from disease because they thought, you know, there was this herbal tincture that could cure all sorts of things, particularly inflammation and infection and parasites, being as they were mm-hmm. over, over in Algeria. And then um, the troops kind of brought it back with them, their enthusiasm for it. And it became popular amongst the bourgeoisie. Um, and so you start to sort of see this rise throughout the mid 19th century. And it's with the with the French troops that you see the introduction of euphemistic names for it as well. So they call it the Green Lady. We see in some of the letters they write about it. Mm-hmm. And they also go off to other places, uh, you know, because they've been out waging war, they settle in different countries. So you also see the emergence of these distilleries in Spain and Argentina and Cork in Ireland as well. So these, um, yeah, these absinthe distillers all around the world. Then it hits its sort of golden age of everyone's drinking it (laughs) between 1880 and 1910. And when I say everyone's drinking it, in this region, happy hour was called the green hour. Between five and seven (laughs) would be when everyone was uh, drinking absinthe. And it's when we see around that time the emergence of the green fairy. Uh, And I'll talk specifically about that when I talk about Bohemians a bit later on. But... We have to bypass this golden age, first of all, to talk about banning because it relates so closely to the myths people have about absinthe. Mm-hmm. So I think in large part, the Bohemians have a lot to do with this because they created so much mysticism around the properties of absinthe and people came to distrust it. The conservative classes would look at the way the Bohemians were behaving and say, we don't want that. And they were so into absinthe, they then blamed absinthe as part of that behaviour. It's also entirely possible that there was an active smear campaign run not only by the Puritans, but along with the winemakers. So there was quite a lot of clout in certain classes around trying to then subdue absinthe's popularity again. And then Mm -hmm. adding to this negative reputation, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, there were a lot of unscrupulous makers of the drink coming about because, you know, when a drink gets really popular, all of a sudden you get cheap versions, cheap knockoffs, rather than making it in this traditional way. Um, And I'll tell you how the traditional way is made shortly, but what they did is the green colour in absinthe is meant to be natural. And when they were making a cheap version, they didn't have that natural colour, so they would add toxic copper salts to give it this artificial uh-huh. green tint. 
Yeah, exactly. And another <laughs> thing they would do is instead of letting the wormwood um, infused by being distilled, they might instead add oils afterwards. And you know, when I said that if it was, um, if you consume it in really high amounts, it could be toxic. Yeah. Well, if you add a whole bunch of wormwood oil because you think that would be fun, then all of a sudden <laughs> you're really increasing the toxicity. Toxicity. Yeah. So people very likely could have started getting very ill from drinking those cheap absinths. And I think that's part of what happened with the reputation as well. Mm-hmm. But there was a turning point where it really sort of um, sealed the coffin, <laughs> should have picked better words, because it hinges on a murder case from 1905. This Swiss farmer, Jean Lamfray, murdered his family in 1905 and then attempted to take his own life, the report says, after drinking absinthe. This guy in reality was a violent alcoholic and consumed lots of quantities of wine as well beforehand and brandy and then had two glasses of absinthe but it was a better story to say that the murders were inspired by absinthe instead and this was really this this tipping point in this debate around it and there was a petition that came off the back of that in in um, Switzerland 82,000 signatures were put to it and they held a referendum so the country actually voted on the 5th of July, 1908, and the voters um, went down in favour of prohibiting absinthe. So it's written into the Swiss constitution to prohibit that. And that really spiralled, and there were a lot of other countries around the same time who then went on and banned it because of this reputation it, it suddenly gained somewhat unfairly. Uh, and there's a legacy of that, which is that you um, then have a variety of clear absinthe rather than green because it was easier to sneak past the authorities. And you also see the rise in anise-flavoured spirits that did not have wormwood in it. So it was mm-hmm. imitating some of the absinthe, but it didn't have that crucial thing that they thought was hallucinogenic. So you see the emergence of things like French pastis or ouzo. Mm-hmm. There are some places it was never banned. So in Britain, it was never banned. And <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, it's one of these things you want to feel proud of. But actually, it was just because we didn't really drink it. It wasn't ever <laughs> popular in Britain, so they didn't bother banning it. Um, and the Czech Republic, as it was then, Czechia now, uh, also didn't ban it. That was because they gave zero shits. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Czech Republic so, is the one-stop sh- stag do shop yes exactly and i know you've got some stories to tell about that um but in the in the 1990s britain started importing it from uh, czech republic again and that's that was really the beginning of the rebirth of absinthe so it was the bohemian style that they were importing though not the traditional style the bohemian style slightly less in the anise department and a lot of people consider that inferior because it's not the traditional um, French-Swiss one. I have to be honest, I slightly prefer it because I'm not as much of a fan of the Anise. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, so Britain, Britain's getting this bohemian import from Czech Republic. It wasn't until 2000, the year 2000, that distillation actually returned to France with La Fée Absinthe, the, the Absinthe Fairy. And the US uh, wasn't even allowed to import it until 2007. So we're looking at a really recent revival of 
a drink that, I mean, yes, is 18th century in its creation, but actually wormwood being used in so many other things historically because um, its medicinal properties were very revered. Mm. So that's kind of creation, ban, reemergence. Yeah. Before I hand it over to you, I should probably say a little bit about how it's actually made because we haven't done that yet, but I need a sip. <laughs> of my Bekarovka. Mm. Thank you, Prague. Um, right, so only Switzerland actually has a legal definition of absinthe, which also, you know, lends itself to that dodgy maker saying, oh, this is totally absinthe. And really, <laughs> it's just like some very strong vodka with a bag of herbs thrown in it. And they can get away with that because there's no legal definition. So we'll concentrate on the only one that has a legal definition where it began, which is absinthe is a, is a spirit, not a liqueur, because uh, the sugar's added after you pour it, not you know, not, not during the making of it. It's distilled from alcohol between 45 and 74% ABV. And after the first distillation, it's macerated with anise and fennel and, and the wormwood. And then it's distilled again to remove bitterness and add complexity to the flavor. And traditional absinthe will obtain their green color strictly from the chlorophyll that's in the um, in the herbs that they put in after the second maceration. Mm -hmm. And that means you're kind of steeping plants like um, hyssop and melissa and all sorts of other things into the distillate. Chlorophyll um, doesn't, uh, doesn't degrade. It remains chemically active. So it's not just there for color, it adds flavor as well to high quality absence. And, and some people would say that chlorophyll Kind of serves that similar role that you get in tannins with wine or, or brown liquors. So that's, you know, it, people who are really know their absence and want to taste it will also be looking out for the chlorophyll profile. Mm -hmm. And then after this colouring process, it's diluted with water so you get the desired percentage of alcohol. Um, and some people think as well that it can improve with with storage. So pre-band distilleries would age their absinthe in setting tanks before they bottle them. How long do they age it for? I mean, I don't know. Um, it's, you know, it's before a lot of these records really, and I don't know how much it, it really adds to it. So there's no, there's certainly no kind of legal definition of how you should or shouldn't age it. So it was variable by the distillers and they probably kept it a bit of a secret as well, I would thought. But many, many modern, Absinthe use cold distilling, so that's like with compound gins or flavoured vodkas where it's just sort of mixed in afterwards and then not re-distilled. But then obviously yeah. the problem with that is it can lead to weird toxic ingredients like sticking in a load of wormwood oil. It, <laughs> this has happened in some home kits, like make your own absinthe at home, which I'm telling you because if anyone's going to do it, <laughs> Um, <laughs> where people now thought it would be a really good idea to just try necking the wormwood oil um, and then that leads to kidney failure so don't do that kids don't oh do gosh. that stick I, I think stick to the traditional as far as you can it's safer <laughs> I mean I've, I've learned from my Prosecco I'm not going to try making absinthe mm -mm. I don't think it's the best idea <laughs> all right that's me for a bit okay well, I, I really, really researched into the serving of absinthe uh, because 
I was under the impression that you just shot it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's so far from that, isn't it? Oh my God, yeah, it's really lavish. I didn't realise how lavish it is. Um, so traditionally, it should not be drunk straight. Um, it should be drunk diluted. And presumably because of the intense flavours, it's diluted with water, nothing else. Um, and the way in which they do this, they have these really cool absinthe fountains. They're like a big receptacle for the water that would sit in the middle of the table. And it'll have several spouts coming out of it with a little tap on each. And so you have however many people are there, you have a glass for each person and you have a, an amount of absinthe in each glass. And then you will turn the small tap on very, very slowly to drip over the sugar, which is placed on a very fancy spoon sat over the glass. So you'll have your glass, your spoon, your sugar cube. Then you turn on the tap so it slowly drip, drip, drips into the absinthe. And it should be four to six parts water to one part absinthe. So it is a fair bit of water dilutes it down. It's not like whiskey on the rocks or anything like that. Um, and the interesting thing that I read, it got very scientific, was about how the absinthe goes milky. Mm. Or louche, they call it. I, I, by the way, louche is one of my favourite words um, <laughs> <laughs> for for it, one of its other meanings, not for the milky absinthe. But I was delighted to learn that's what it's called. Louche. <laughs> it's got other names. Uh, one of my favourites being the ouzo effect. Ah. Uh. Um, but people who are really into their drinks and mixology, they're like really excited about absinthe and how it's got this like crazy properties with regards to water mm. so like normally if you pour water into alcohol say like whiskey or a gin or whatever or gin you can't see because it it's clear but it's flavored gin um you pour in your mixer or water and it tends to kind of like swirl and then eventually it'll all mix together or you'd have to stir it to mix it but the interesting thing with absinthe is that as soon as the water touches the absinthe it instantly just goes cloudy and milky it's almost like an instant reaction. And also it stays that way. It can stay that way for months. Like the separation just doesn't happen. Mm. So if you left, say, oil in water or sand in a swimming pool for long enough, it would be cloudy for a very short time and then sink to the bottom and the water would sit above. That just doesn't seem to happen with absinthe. It just stays in that state. And, and that's specifically with the traditional absence isn't it rather than the bohemian yes and it's to do with the anise that's in there um so in prague and czech they don't is it prague or french i can't remember the ones that go the guys that don't use the anise obviously don't have the cloudy it would be, yeah it would be in prague prague they don't use it um so yeah i went down this massive wormhole of reading about it and it got very scientific and there were diagrams and i got really really confused um so i went to the subreddit explain like i'm five <laughs> <laughs> and i found somebody just asked um why does absinthe turn milky when water is added and it's pretty much they've said what i've said but in a better way they've said the anise oils in the drinks are responsible the oils are soluble in alcohol but not water adding water to the drink dilutes the alcohol to a level where the oils fall out of solution 
When completely dissolved, they are clear, but separated from the water, they form little bubbles of oil. These little oil droplets scatter throughout the liquid, make it cloudy white. And of course, they don't separate for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's magic. It's such a beautiful experience doing that drinking with the fountain and the really deep green colour. And because we, because mm -hmm. we went to an absinthe bar in Prague. Uh, so yeah. I can't remember, I don't remember the absinthe going milky and that will probably be why, because we probably <laughs> had a bohemian one. Uh, but I yeah. do remember it being a really beautiful colour and the and the fountain being really pretty as well. I am ashamed to say that I was quite inebriated at that point <laughs> and I don't remember even, I don't even remember the absinthe fountain or the show, I don't remember it. I don't remember. <laughs> well, this is a good reason to go back, isn't it? <laughs> so at least you can experience that again. Are, hey, look, the thing is with Prague, you know, there is more, there, there are many drinks to be enjoyed in Prague. What, were, what are some of the things you do remember from that? <laughs> well, I was going to say, there are two things I remember specifically from the absinthe bar. <laughs> okay. And that is... Uh, before we went in, we got really excited that there was, um, it wasn't anyone's bike, it was just like a prop outside the bar, a tandem bike. And you and I had a really clumsy photo taken on that before we went in. Yes. So I remember that. I probably only remember that because of there's photographic evidence. Yeah. Um, remembering a memory rather than the original memory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but my original memory was upon leaving the absinthe bar i drew a massive penis in the condensation on the window at the door <laughs> you're just the worst <laughs> okay we can't go back there then <laughs> but the drinks, it was... i do remember the drinks uh i remember there being like 50 pence hot wine on the street which is great yes yeah, yeah. now to put it in context, we went in early January, didn't we? I think it was January. And we, yeah. when we landed, we'd gone from a fairly nondescript winter in Britain to minus 18 in Prague. <laughs> and the best way to get through that experience, I mean, we had a great time. It's, it's such a lovely city. But you, it's so cold that you do need to just hop between uh hot wine street wet vendors to, to be mm -hmm. outside for any period of time you get you get your hot wine on one end of the street you walk down you look at all the pretty things and by the time you get to the other end of the street you need another hot wine and they are 50p <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you find like a lot of you know aside from all the beers and things which i think we'll do on another episode mm -hmm. when we were headed kind of towards back the hotel and it was late at night the glowing lights from within this absinthe bar were so welcome. And because it's so, you know, the, the alcohol so high, it really flushes you. And I know that alcohol <laughs> doesn't warm you up. I know it just makes you feel like you're warm when it's cold. But it was such a nice experience to get us those um, last few minutes back to the hotel. It was good, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you have to take my word from it. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so um, shall I tell you about Bohemians? Yes, please. All right, so here's the thing. Like, 
um, absinthe is synonymous with these bohemians. You know, they're the ones who arguably gave it something of a bad name uh, because of their behavior. It's kind of hard to figure out exactly why the bohemians adopted absinthe as their drink of choice. I think it's just, as I say, that it, it got so popular that there were really cheap knockoff versions and they were all living in poverty for one reason or another. And I think the other thing is just that it was so pretty. It was, you know, it inspired a lot of artists because of its, because of its beautiful color and pageantry. So that's the only reason I can think of really why they took it on. There wasn't anything kind of political or historical about it that I couldn't cover. But there's a lot of examples where they, you know, either spoke about it or painted or elevated it. So I thought I'd, I'd go through some of those to give you an idea of what the Bohemians were all about. The Bohemians, by the way, it was the, <laughs> the reason they're called Bohemians is because France wrongly got the idea that uh, traveling Romanies came into France in the 15th century from the Bohemia region. They weren't from the Bohemia region, which is around Czech Republic, as we would know it now. Um, they weren't from there, but they thought they were. <laughs> so when they settled in the uh, more sort of poverty-stricken areas around Paris, for example, in the sort of slummier areas, they referred to it as Bohemia because that's where the, the, the Romans and the Bohemians kind of belonged. And then as the <laughs> impoverished artists and writers and, you know, all these musicians and all these people went to live in the cheap areas, they identified themselves as Bohemians because they lived there. It's very similar to what you would see now in any area pre-gentrification. Where, you know, I was going to say, George. Yes, exactly. So before, <laughs> before all that happened, they go there and they choose one particular, you know, food stuff or drink that they want to gravitate to and that becomes their thing. So it's very much like that. And the, the Bohemians were really trying to reject, you know, the status quo and conservatives. And so they actively lived a life of poverty, whether it was out of necessity or not. Okay. So that's, that's the Bohemians. So in, in 1840s, the writer uh, Henri Merger wrote several short stories, which were then eventually turned into a collection in the 1850s called Scenes of Bohemian Life. And that really kind of sets the archetype, I think, for a lot of the representations you get of Bohemians now. And it was turned into a couple of plays, which then inspired the opera La Boheme. So Puccini's opera La Boheme, or The Bohemians, there's actually no absinthe in that though. They do drink a lot of wine, but no absinthe. Yeah. Then in 1857, you get a poem called Poison from The Flowers of Evil by Baudelaire. And Baudelaire ranked absinthe ahead of wine and opium. He said, none of which equals the poison welling up in your eyes that show me my poor soul reversed. My dreams throng to drink at those green distorting pools. So you can see like the way he's talking about it. He's really enraptured with the image of it. But mm -hmm. the thing about that Baudelaire is he was also taking laudanum and opium with his absinthe. So, <laughs> <laughs> and just another, I, I feel like I'm witness for the defense for absinthe, but you know, you can't say it's causing your, um, your distortions and your dreams if you're also on laudanum perhaps, and opium. Perhaps he did what we did. We spent the day on it and then finished up with absinthe. So and then blamed the absinthe. 
Exactly. Perhaps he did a lot of wine and opium all day and then had one <laughs> bit of absinthe yeah. and went, oh, just, mental. Can I just clarify for anyone listening? We were not on opium and laudanum all day. We were drinking <laughs> pills. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know what you... Got and um, what were those things called? They were like cakes stuffed with cream. I can't remember what they were called. Oh, they're like... Um, they're, they're chimney cakes. Um, yeah. Oh, goodness. You've, you've got me stuck on the actual name, but they're kind of like um, chimney cakes. You're, you can look yeah, it up. Next it. <laughs> so, um, more writers talking about it. Rambo talked about it as well. And it's, you know, head swirling effects, except that he was also taking it with hashish. Can you see the pattern here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> then in 1859, we're going on to the painters, Manet paints the absinthe drinker. And it's rejected from the Salon de Paris. Everyone's like, uh, no, gross, um, apart from one person. Um, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't look too bad when you look at it compared to some of the later ones. Uh, you know, he's got a nice hat on, he's got nice shoes, but he is sort of sitting on a wall with a discarded bottle next to him. So you can kind of see where their objections came in. Then... That's, like, that's like the Daily Mail back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Then um, Degart... Uh, Edward Jagar tries his hand later on with Labsanth, as it's known now, then I think it was just in the cafe or something, or, or a Paris cafe, in 1875. Again, critics called it vulgar. And this one is more obviously so. It's two people sat next to each other in a cafe with a glass of absinthe on the table. And the guy is looking disheveled and out the window, and the woman is just sort of looking down and depressed. So Degas trying to make out that people who drink this are, you know, depressives and will let themselves go. Um, and you know, arguably, it's just a representation of alcoholism rather than specifically absinthe. Mm -hmm. Then um, Van Van Gogh in 1887. And there's a lot of mythology <laughs> around Van Gogh and, and Absinthe. You know, some people are like, oh, it led him to cut off his ear and it definitely inspired his green colours. I, I mean, there's no doubt, like, he did paint a glass of Absinthe once and he did like to drink it. But it, it's anytime anyone says anything is um, caused Van Gogh to cut his ear off, I call bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> then um, Picasso in 1901. He does another picture. It's kind of like an evolution of the Degas absence drinker. But with Picasso, he has one drinker who's got this sort of tight, contorted body. He looks pained drinking it. He's not enjoying it. Despite, you know, what we hear from the actual bohemians themselves about how much they like to enjoy it. Particularly from the 20th century writers. And I think no one exemplifies that more than Ernest Hemingway. So he actually you know, wrote about it a bit more from the 1920s on because he spent a lot of time in Spain. So even when they sort of banned it in France and Switzerland and, and, and other countries around there, um, Spain kind of kept distilling it. And he worked there as a journalist. He also you know, fought in the Civil War, Spanish Civil War. And he writes about it in pretty much every book. His characters are always drinking a lot of absinthe, particularly to console <laughs> themselves. And Hemingway even invented a cocktail in 1935 for a celebrity drinks book called Death in the Afternoon, named after <laughs> one, of his, one of his novels. And the instructions are to pour one jigger absinthe into a champagne glass 
add iced champagne until it attains the proper opalescent milkiness. Drink three to five of these slowly. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I think we could try that one day. Now that's the definition of double leash. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, abs- you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lull through the 20th century and then absinthe makes its way back into bohemian lifestyle representation in 2001. Do you know why? Mm, no. <laughs> that's because, shockingly, you have not seen this film, I found out. Moulin <gasps> Rouge. So Moulin Rouge came out in 2001. It's heavily based on you know, scenes from, Bohe- from Bohemian life. It's based on La Boheme. And it features the personification of the Green Fairy, which is actually directly inspired by an 1895 painting called Green Muse by Albert Maignan. So it's, it's kind of like the complete version of all the various bits of representation of bohemians and absinthe drinking put into one thing. And that now still is our enduring memory. And you've got to think it came out in 2001 at the time when 2000, you know, the, the, distiller, the distillery had come back to France and it hadn't been active for 90 years or so. So mm. it's, it's kind of like this big reforming of our idea of what absinthe is and how it relates to the bohemians. Crucially, mm-hmm. <laughs> Ewan McGregor gets drunk on absinthe and all of a sudden he sees Kylie uh, as the green fairy and she <laughs> sings a mashup of Children of the Revolution and The Sound of Music and then she growls and turns into Ozzy Osbourne. Oh my God, I need to see this film. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Why haven't you seen this film? I think I discarded everything Moulin Rouge when Christina Aguilera and, and Pink and Maya did that song. Right, you judged it on a music video based on it. <laughs> yeah, I saw that music video and I'm just like, no, I'm out. I'm never watching that film. <laughs> you know, it's worth a watch. I I really enjoyed it. Um, back, I haven't well, watched it for many years, so I don't know how it's aged, but it it was great back then. And I'm the, sold. You've got me on Kylie turning into Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, although I've got to, I've got to be honest, you you won't notice it because that was the sort of extended on cut version. There was right. a whole section where the green, fa- green fairy turns extra growly and nasty, and that was done by Ozzy Osbourne. They decided to cut that out of the theatrical release. So you do see her eyes turn red and her growl, and Ozzy Osbourne is credited as sort of doing that bit, but it's a blink and you'll miss it kind of turn for Ozzy Osbourne. But there's, there's mm-hmm. enough Kylie to enjoy. <laughs> Good, like, trivia question to have under your hat. Yes, it's an excellent mm-hmm. trivia question. Yeah. I found the name of the cake. Yep. I do not want to try and pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> if you pronounce it how you think you pronounce it to me, then I think I might remember how it's pronounced. Is it Trelnik? Ah, yes. It's Trelnik. Trelnik. It's spelled T-R-D-E-L-N-I-K. Yeah. Trelnik. I think it's a J sound, Trigelnik, something like that. Yeah, they were good. They were so good. Mm. Well, Prague is definitely uh, on the list to revisit, I think both in terms of podcasts, because we haven't spoken about Pilsner and you can't go to Prague and not talk about Pilsner. 
but also mm-hmm. in a in a legitimate sense when we're allowed to go out rambling again because um, we need to take you back to that absinthe bar so you can appreciate the fountain. Yeah, we can start there this time. <laughs> <laughs> really, start an absinthe? Can you have fewer hot wines? No, no, no! I'll freeze. <laughs> if we go in the summer, that's the answer, isn't it? I, I like wine. <laughs> <laughs> They have nice, they have nice uh, white wines as well. Yeah, they've got that vineyard, haven't they, uh, on the way up to the castle? Yes, exactly. You walk, yeah. you walk through it on the way up to the castle. Mm-hmm. You can I remember that, aren't you? Well, yeah, it was sober then. We, you bloody got us up at the crack of dawn to walk up to that bloody castle. It did. It's got you out of the hotel at like 8am <laughs> so we could go and see the guys. <laughs> and it was still like minus 15. <laughs> <laughs> I was sober, I was cold, I was mad. So you I remember it all. <laughs> <laughs> I have no morning sympathy, do I, when we go on these these trips? No. Like, come on everyone, let's get up and go out. <laughs> I do remember our friend Zaley almost crying because she was so cold. <laughs> no sympathy. <laughs> uh, anything anything else in absinthe or if we um drunk it dry? I did try to find some absinthe jokes, but they were all terrible. They all had the same punchline, uh, but with other different awful puns. And it was generally absinthe makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah, really, really poor jokes. I don't want to end there. I've ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) You ruined the podcast. There's nothing else to say. (laughs) And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to join Kylie for an hallucinogenic rampage. Cheers, everybody! Cheers!